Uh, Golf is a great game, uh, but it sure can bring out the worst in people. I have seen godly men act like devils on the golf course, and I myself have acted like a devil on the golf course. Uh, You want to see your ball scorching down the fairway for like 300 yards, but instead you see it hooking towards the house that's 75 yards out of bounds. That's just a little bit of how golf is. And why pay money for 18 holes of unfulfilled dreams and expectations? But it's the good shots, it's the good memories that, that keep us coming back. Earlier this year, Dad, Chris, and I went to Treetop in Mannheim to catch 18 holes together. It was a rough start for Chris. Uh, Through the first five holes, Chris was growing frustrated uh, at his pathetic performance, and it was. And and honestly, it was a bit tense. It was a bit tense. And before we teed off on number six, it was a par three around 200 yards, I politely asked Chris if he was open uh, for some tips. And very humbly, he welcomed my input. And I coached him on some things, and folks, what followed was one of the most epic moments in golf that I think I have ever experienced. It might be the most epic moment. My brother's game looked hideous for five holes, but on the sixth hole, after I coached him a bit, by the sweet providence of God, my brother swung that club, connected with that ball, and we watched it soar through the air and land on the green a few feet from the hole. So we made some noise. It was an amazing moment. Chris parred the hole, and things were looking up for him. Two holes later, using his new technique, he scorched another drive around 235 yards, landing it a few feet from the hole, and he then sank the birdie putt, and we made more noise. It was amazing. It was just an amazing moment. There is a term that golfers use to describe shots like Chris's, pure. Uh, In golf lingo, Chris pured it. He pured those tee shots. And isn't that an interesting way to put it? When a golfer hits the ball square on the sweet spot of the club and sends that ball for a ride down the fairway or right onto the green, we call it pure. Pure shots are amazing to see especially when you don't hit them that much, like myself and my brother Chris and my dad. The great Puritan commentator Matthew Henry said, quote, true Christianity lies in the heart, in the purity of heart. Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are those who pure it. Jesus explains that the pure in heart are supremely happy because they are guaranteed to see God. But what's so great about seeing God? When God seems unimpressive, when people don't anticipate seeing him, purity in heart is a very low priority. Many people don't care about being pure in heart because seeing God seems so unexciting to them. But that's because they don't know God at least as they should. So I want to start by defining pure in heart and then try to explain why seeing God is totally worth it. Because if seeing God is our definition of supreme blessedness, then purity in heart will be our utmost priority in life. So first, what does it mean to be pure in heart? 
We've heard of a, a pure golf shot, pure spring water, pure bloodedness, uh, pure bred dogs, pure gold, even pure musical notes. To be pure is to be free of contamination, free of any blemish, free of any discordant quality. To be pure is to be untarnished, untainted, unsullied, unstained, unblemished. One definition, definition describes pure as containing nothing that does not properly belong. Pure in heart is when the inner man is free of contamination, free of blemish, free of any discordant quality in relation to God's law, free of everything that does not properly belong. What does Jesus mean by heart? Well, not the muscular organ that pumps blood. Jesus is talking about the inner self. And here we have to be very careful not to read our modern conception of heart into this text. Um, Heart meant more than emotions uh, and feelings Uh, in Matthew's day. The ancient conception of cardia or heart was broader than emotions. It included three aspects of the inner self, rational, emotional, and volitional. So the heart includes the way we think, rational, the way we feel, emotional, and the way we will, volitional. When Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, he meant that those who think pure things, feel pure things, and will pure things are supremely happy. If the heart is pure, as God's law defines purity, if the thoughts, feelings, and will are all pure, a person is truly happy. What does it mean to be pure in heart? In Job 15, verse 14, Eliphaz said, What is man that he can be pure, or he who is born of a woman that he can be righteous? And I think that there's a parallel there, man parallels he who is born of a woman and pure parallels righteous. A pure heart is a righteous heart. Proverbs 20 verse 9 says, who can say I have made my heart pure? I am clean from my sin. So a pure heart is a heart clean from sin. When Jesus was engaging the scribes and Pharisees in Matthew 23, he got straight to the heart of the matter. He said, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside also may be clean." See, the Pharisees worked so hard at outward conformity to the law, and at the same time, they ignored the inward impurity of their own hearts. This made them hypocrites, and hypocrites aren't happy. Saints, think about the sixth beatitude as it relates to the four interpretive points that I've given. Jesus is pure in heart. He's the only one. His thoughts, his feelings, and his will are completely pure before the Lord. He is supremely happy, and he has seen God. He is the pure king of his pure kingdom. Nothing impure has a place in his kingdom. Ephesians 5.5 says that everyone who is impure has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. And when we hear the sixth beatitude, we must acknowledge our own impurity of heart. We all think, 
feel and will impure things. We are all desperate for God's purifying grace, his purifying work, and this is where we receive the gospel by faith and strive to be pure in heart. Brothers and sisters, the gospel says that God makes the impure pure. God says in Ezekiel 36, 25 through 29, you don't want to miss this. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God and I will deliver you from all your uncleannesses. That's how the impure are made pure. God purifies them by his sovereign grace and work. And notice that God will cause his purified people to walk in his statutes and to be careful to obey all of his rules. They pure it because he has made them pure. This is the logical and inevitable gratitude which follows guilt and grace. Psalm 51 David expressed what it's like to long for a pure heart. Purge me with hyssop, he says, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. And take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. The pure in heart are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness and within whom the cleansing grace of God is at work making them pure. In the upper room, Jesus said to Peter, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And he told Peter, and you are clean. And then he told the 11 after Judas left, already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Jesus makes the dirty clean with his gospel. Saints, don't reduce the Beatitudes to moralism or legalism or antinomianism. Use guilt, grace, gratitude to interpret the Beatitudes when God, by his grace and spirit, takes our dirty hearts and washes them clean, we become truly happy in Christ. And God continues to purify us until one day we see God. We see God and we become entirely pure. Consider the impurities of your own heart. Deceit covetousness, sensuality, lust, greed, envy, jealousy, anger, bitterness, fear, anxiety, idolatry, 
selfishness. We could go on. How will we be pure with so much impurity in our thoughts and in our emotions and in our will? A shower can't make you clean. A shower can't clean your heart. Medicine can't purify your heart. Surgery can't cut sin out of your heart. Pretty clothes and jewelry and sweet perfume can't cover the sin in your heart. Who is pure in heart? Only those whom God purifies by his grace and by his spirit. God must wash you clean in the heart. And he does that by his cleansing grace through faith and union with Christ. We are purified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We have been made pure. We are being made pure. And we will be made pure in the end. Listen very carefully to 1 John 3, 2 and 3. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Colin Cruz wrote, quote, the hope of being like Christ in the future expresses itself in an effort to purify oneself to be like him in the present. Brothers and sisters, we are God's beloved children now. But when Jesus returns and when we see him, we will finally be like him. What a transformation it will be. We see him as he is and we are made like him. So as we hope in him in this life, we also purify ourselves. We devote ourselves to purity as he is pure. That hope of the future purity is, is expressing itself in an effort to be pure like him. If you know Christ and you hope to be like him, that's legitimate in your heart then you will, by spirit-wrought, grace-induced, faith-fueled effort, strive to be pure in your thoughts, in your emotions, and in your will. Saints, Christ is the purifier of your heart and works in you both to will and to work purity for God's pleasure. So, though we are not yet what we will be in terms of purity... Having received God's grace in Christ and promise of seeing God, we are motivated by his spirit to be pure like him. Okay, so we understand pure in heart. But why are the pure in heart alone truly happy? Blessed are the pure in heart for or because they shall see God. The happiness of the pure in heart is not anchored to the fleeting and momentary pleasures of this world, but is anchored to the true hope and reality of seeing God. Now, may I just say that the phrase, they shall see God, is beyond me. It's beyond me. I don't know what seeing God will be like. Whatever I say about this is going to be so thoroughly inadequate. But I guess I can try. What does it mean 
to see God. Oh, the mystery of that phrase. Here are three simple points that I want to clarify. Number one, God is infinitely beautiful, magnificent, and glorious, and worth seeing. Number two, this one might throw you. God is spirit and cannot be seen. And number three, God promises the pure in heart that they will see him. First, God is infinitely beautiful, magnificent, glorious, and worth seeing. You have to believe that for Beatitude 6 to mean anything to you. Now, you've likely seen some spectacular things in your life, but my friends, you have never seen God. Nothing like God. I've seen the Grand Canyon. I've seen the Mohegan Bluffs in Rhode Island. I've seen the electric blue waters and beaches of Greece. But I have yet to see the unveiled beauty, magnificence, and glory of God. What is it like to see pure beauty? All that that you and I have, have ever seen is flawed beauty through our flawed eyes. What is it like to see a self-existent being who depends on nothing outside of himself? What is it like to see tri-unity? To see one God, yet three divine persons who are all the same in substance and equal in power and glory. What is it like to see the Father, the Son, and the Spirit loving one another perfectly and experiencing their love without barrier and without impediment? What is it like to see the grandeur of holiness, righteousness, and goodness? What is it like to see unsurpassed loveliness? What is it like to see a divine being that never changes? What is it like to see a being who is light and in whom there is no darkness and who dwells in unapproachable light? What is it like to see an all-powerful being and all-knowing being and everywhere at the same time being? Saints, what is it like to see a transcendent, imminent, impassable, impeccable, incomprehensible, infinite, sovereign, eternal, truthful, wrathful, gracious, merciful, and supremely happy and blessed God? What is that like? I don't know. Moses was right to say, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds? For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours? What is it like to see God? Kids, Batman, Spider-Man, Superman, Aquaman. All the Avengers are mythical, and they pack out theaters. God is real, and he fills the whole earth with his glory and reigns and rules over all creation, upholding the real universe by the real power of his real word. Newsflash, the real God is cooler than the mythical Batman. That might be a stretch for some of you, but it's true. I love Batman. But God is better, and the pure in heart will see God. Have you ever seen a a beauty, okay, so intense that the moment you saw it, you died? 
I presume not. You're still here. I don't think that has happened for you yet. All the beauty that you have ever beheld has left you living. Yet God's beauty is so extreme that if you were to see God now, you would die. That's how intense it is. The Lord said to Moses in Exodus 33, verse 20, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Now that's intense beauty. A beauty that's so amazing it will kill you on the spot. God is beautiful. Secondly, God is spirit and can't be seen. Talk about mystery. How can the pure in heart be promised to see God when God is invisible? Jesus explained the Samaritan woman at the well, God is spirit. Folks, you can't see spirit. 1 Timothy 1.17 says, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God. God is invisible. You can't see him. 1 Timothy 6.16 says, God alone has immortality and who dwells in unapproachable light whom no one has ever seen or can see. John mentions twice in his writing, no one has ever seen God. Now, seeing dim manifestations of God's glory, absolutely, yes. But seeing God in the fullness of his unveiled beauty, magnificence, and glory, no. No one has ever seen God. No one except one. The God-man Jesus Christ said in John 6, not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God, he has seen the Father. One person has seen God, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, and he tells us without hesitation, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Jesus knows the happiness of seeing God with a pure heart. He knows the unfathomable, the inexpressible pleasure of seeing and eternally communing with God. Might we listen to what he has to say about happiness and purity of heart? I believe Jesus was pure in heart because he was enthralled with the beauty, magnificence, and glory of his Father. Not only does Jesus see God, but he is God in the flesh. Colossians 1.15 says about Jesus Christ, he is the image of the invisible God. Je Jesus told Philip, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Wow. We cannot see God, yet we can see God in the person of Jesus Christ. He is human, yet he is divine, and in seeing Christ, we see the Father. Mystery. Who can fathom it? Who can put this into words? It is a mystery too wonderful for us to grasp right now. Third, God nevertheless promises the pure in heart that they shall see God. How will the pure in heart see him? Mystery? <laughs> How can I capture what the Reformed theologians sometimes call the beatific vision? Meaning, the sight of God which bestows supreme happiness upon those who see. 
How does a preacher describe indescribable beauty? Folks, one day, our bodies will be resurrected. Our souls will be reunited with our bodies. We will live forever in physical and spiritual reality. But seeing God is not dependent upon our physical eyes or senses. As much as I can make sense of this now, at the appearance of Christ, we will be given a new kind of sight to perceive the beauty, magnificence, and glory of God unobstructed. Nothing in the way, not sin, not guilt, not doubt, not distraction, not anything. We are not capable of seeing like that now, but we will be made capable at the sight of Jesus Christ and the completion of our purification. 1 Corinthians 13, 12 says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. I think seeing God then will be a full revelation and knowledge of God's glory. Not as if we know all that there is to know about God, but know God without the obstruction of our corruption. We shall see God in a much fuller and in a much better way in that day. No longer seeing by faith, but seeing by sight, making our happiness complete. I agree with Pittsburgh area pastor Jeff Stuyvesant who wrote this. Now, at the present, if you are alive, that is, you see God by faith. At present, we walk by faith and not by sight. What is more, our vision of God now by faith is only adequate and apprehensive because the finite is not able to grasp the infinite. However, there will come a day when faith will give way to sight. And Dr. Stuyvesant rightly asks, but of what kind of sight are we speaking? Paul wrote in his first epistle to Timothy saying, no man has ever seen nor can see God. So how in the world are we going to see the unseeable? I like how he put that. And Dr. Stuyvesant turns to Jonathan Edwards, the great mind of Jonathan Edwards, to explore the profound subject of seeing God. So I read a little bit of Edwards, and I think Edwards captures the mystery of the beatific vision of God as good as anyone. And folks, Jonathan Edwards seeks to explain why the pure in heart will be eternally happy in seeing God. Edwards said that this moment of seeing God, the beatific vision, is the infinite fountain of the blessedness of the saints. He said, this vision of God is the chief bliss of heaven. And Edwards clarified, it is no sight of anything with the bodily eyes, but it is an intellectual view. The beatific vision of God is not a sight with the eyes of the body, but with the eyes of the soul. That's hard to understand. What? We are body and soul. Our bodies have great limitations, though, so to see with the soul is better. Edwards talked about seeing God physically in the person of Christ. We don't want to minimize this. He added this. The seeing God in the glorified body of Christ is the most perfect way of seeing God with the bodily eyes that can be. 
For in seeing a real body, which one of the persons of the Trinity has assumed to be his body, and in which he dwells forever as his own, the divine majesty and excellency appears as much as it is possible for them to appear in outward form or shape. The saints do actually see a divine person with bodily eyes and in the same manner as we see one another. Okay. I think what Edwards means is that the only way to see God with physical eyes is to see him incarnated in the Son, in the human resurrected body of Christ in the last day. We shall see him. In John 14, Jesus said to his disciples in the upper room, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Well, Philip didn't understand, so he asked, Lord, show us the father, and it is enough for us. And maybe you're like Philip. Maybe you're like, I don't understand what you're saying, Jesus. And Jesus tenderly answered Philip, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the father. How can you say, show us the Father? Saints, in the last day, when we set our eyes on our Savior, we will be seeing the beauty, magnificence, and glory of God in the face of the risen Jesus Christ. But the beatific vision is more. It's more. We may be tempted to think merely in physical terms because that's what we're used to, but Edwards pushes us beyond the physical into the spiritual from the seeing with the eyes to the seeing with the soul. William Hendrickson calls the beatific vision of God a spiritual perception of a delight in his being and attributes. Hendrickson said, this beatific vision will amount to the sinless and uninterrupted fellowship of the souls of all the redeemed with God in Christ, a seeing face to face. Imagine it, sinless and uninterrupted fellowship of our souls with God forever. Edwards continues, the soul is capable of apprehending God in a thousand times more perfect and glorious manner than the eye of the body is. The soul has in itself those powers whereby it is sufficiently capable of apprehending spiritual objects without looking through the windows of the outward senses. The soul is capable of seeing God more immediately and more certainly and more fully and gloriously than the eye of the body is. That's hard to comprehend. That's hard to wrap your mind around. But I think Edwards was right. Seeing God with the eyes of the soul is so much more complete and certain and glorious than seeing God through the limitations of our physical senses. Edwards says beautifully, what knowledge the saints have of God in this world is like the twilight before sunrising. It is not the direct light of the sun, but the light of the sun reflected, and it is comparatively a dim light. But hereafter, the saints shall enjoy the perfect day. They shall see God as we immediately behold the sun after it has risen above the horizon. No cloud or vapor in the heavens to hinder its sight. Brothers and sisters, the pure in heart see God now through the dim eyes of faith in Christ. And he is glorious to them, but they see his glory dimly at the return of Christ. 
We will be made pure and ready, and at that moment we shall see the vibrant beauty, magnificence, and glory of God unobstructed. Edwards adds, it shall be, according to men's capacity, a perfect sight. It shall not be a perfectly comprehensive sight because it is impossible that a saint's mind should comprehend God. But yet it shall be perfect in its kind. It shall be perfectly certain without any doubt or possibility of doubt. There shall be a view of God in his being and in his power and wisdom and holiness and goodness and love and all sufficiency that shall be attended with intuitive certainty without any mixture of unbelief and with much greater certainty than any sight with the bodily eye. Edwards was saying that to see God with the soul is so much better than seeing God with the limitations of the senses, with his eyes. Imagine having all doubt and unbelief and any possibility of doubt and any possibility of unbelief completely removed and you Delight in full and unhindered communion with God. Your soul sees and enjoys him in perfect oneness. Imagine it. What is that like? And, and, and I want to share this yet with you. A lot of Edwards here, but this is from Edwards because it is so good. And it links seeing God with the utmost and eternal happiness of the pure in heart. This is what makes seeing God worth it. Listen closely. This is Edwards. This sight of God shall satisfy the soul with pleasure. So great will the joy be that the soul will desire no greater. It shall be as full of grace as the large desires of the soul can receive. So sweet shall it be that the soul will desire nothing sweeter. So pure and excellent will it be that the soul will desire nothing better. When the soul beholds the glory and love of God, it shall be at the same time filled with the glory and love of God. It shall receive satisfying pleasure, for it shall receive God. God will communicate and, as it were, pour forth himself into the soul. And with what inexpressible sweetness and complacency will the soul open itself to be thus filled as the flowers open before the sun to be filled with his light and pleasant influences. That's just eloquent. Why couldn't have I written that? Imagine yourself as a beautiful flower opening up and drinking in the light and energy of the sun. When you see God, dear brothers and sisters, you will be supremely and eternally happy. And you will know the blessedness of being pure in heart in full. No doubt, no uncertainty, no skepticism, no obstruction, but pure delight and fellowship. Saints, purity is hard. It's hard. It's really, really hard. Living a pure life, that's just so stinking hard. Purity demands great sacrifice. 
If we want to be pure in heart, we will need to say no to many, many things. Things that most other people say, yes, please, and can I have some more? And they appear to enjoy it. Being pure in heart is very lonely, sometimes leaving us outside of the crowd. People often don't like it when others live purely. We know how that works. It makes them feel guilty, and that makes them mad. And so pure in heart, if you're going to be pure in heart, you're going to lose friends. Being pure in heart can be inconvenient, uncomfortable, thoroughly embarrassing, untimely, and very, very painful. So... When the world hates purity, we have to ask the question, why would we want to be pure? That's not going to go well. Why, why is this desirable? Why be pure in heart when it's so hard and it's so unpopular? Why? One verse answers it all, and one verse ties this entire message together. Romans 8, 18. Paul said, listen very carefully, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. You need it again. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. What we suffer in this life is so small compared to the glory of seeing God in the end. Not anything to write home about. Big deal. I see God in the end. Now, if I can turn that a little bit, a little bit of an angle here, every pleasure in this life is small compared to seeing God. Not even worth it. And that's why pure in heart is so desirable and happy. Because in the end, the pure in heart see God. 